welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. We are here with the week one preview of the 2022 OUA season and the Tom Sterling era of At The 55 begins. Tom, how you feeling, my friend? You've been on the pod a few times now. Does this feel any different knowing that you're kind of in the captain's chair a bit? Oh, yeah. I am so excited to be a part of this team. I've been a longtime fan of you guys ever since the At The 55 kind of started up. And so to be on this side of the microphone now is uh, something I'm really excited for. So I can't wait to get into some OUA football and what this season's going to look like. Long time listener, first time, well, not truly first time, but for the sake of the uh, turn of phrase, first time Potter. Um, so we're going to do somewhat of a, the usual breakdown we've done in years past, whether it was me and Eddie Meredith, me and Dakota Vine, me and Nate Hobbs, and now me and Tom Sterling, where we'll go game by game culminating in the game we uh, see as the game of the week uh, to sort of discuss who we think will come out on top, players to watch, and just any news and notes of that game that we think are interesting. As the season progresses, uh, you know, maybe we'll add a segment here or there just that we think might spice things up. Um, so we'll get into all that. But off the jump, um, me being the the, the Luddite the of, of our group, it was brought to my attention by uh, by my friend here, Tom Sterling, at, uh, some breaking news. Um in the OUA, um, which Tom, I'll give you the, uh, I'll let you uh, announce this while on our pod. Yeah, something that's uh, really awesome here, and it's kind of starting to come to light a little bit. But Taylor Mickleborough, daughter of longtime OUA ref Kevin Mickleborough, is slated to become the first woman on field official in OUA football history this week. She'll be at Waterloo versus York. And hopefully this is a sign of many things to come as we get more and more people into the game of football in general, whether that's from the coaching side of things or the refereeing side of things. So congratulations to Taylor Mickleborough for making her referee uh, debut this weekend. And uh, it should be a good one. Absolutely. And, you know, when you kind of mentioned it to me and then the name obviously rang a bell, um, I was like, Mickle, bro, that's, you know, we're, we're talking officiating. And then, of course, seeing the, the beautiful photo of the family, the three of them, um, uh, the Mickleboroughs and seeing that beautiful mustache um, on on Papa Mickleboro. I was like, oh, oh, yes, I've seen that man on on many an OUA field. So um 100% agree with everything you said there. Great, uh, a move in the the right direction for uh, OUA football, and not just from the officiating standpoint, a sign of things to come on all sides. Um, and ironically, a great transition because the first game we're going to start with, just to get it over with, not because of Taylor, but just because of at least one of the teams involved. Apparently, I'm really mean when it comes to talking about York, but it is the Waterloo Warriors kicking off the post Trey Ford era at York. Uh, at the uh, York Lions Stadium here in Toronto. You know, uh, like many of these games, a lot of the intrigue comes down to who we're seeing uh, obviously take the field here in week one. A lot of the uh, rosters have yet to be updated from the year prior, which maybe is a bit of gamesmanship on some of the team's parts. Um, Maybe is just a bit of, uh, you know, slacking on other teams' parts. I can't say what is what. But obviously with Waterloo, um, we kind of talked about this in the preview pod with Nate. The the most interesting thing, obviously, is, is, isn't is just how this team will do, but sort of the function of who's going to be under center at the helm. Um, where you Where does your mind go when you're thinking about this game? Is this just you're going to have like an eye on the box score as this one goes along or what in particular are you are you looking to see in this one? Yeah. So 
with Waterloo, anytime you lose your OUA player of the year, arguably one of the best athletes in youth sports last year across all sports, it's obviously going to be a huge kind of focus point on how are you going to replace a guy like Trey Ford? And the honest answer is you're not. Either you're not going to have that same level of athlete at that position, or even if you do, you're not going to have somebody who has that same amount of experience that Trey had over his last you know, four or five years at Waterloo. So that's obviously a big question mark. The player that I am the most interested to see is Gordon Lamb, their fifth-year receiver. He's their star receiver. How is he going to be incorporated into the offense to try and help out that new starting quarterback there, whether that's quick crossing routes, whether that's quick passes, maybe even wide receiver end arounds, trying to get the ball into Gordon's hands so that he can make some big plays and potentially take some of that pressure off of the quarterback, get him a little bit of confidence throwing to his number one receiver and see how this Waterloo team can open up post trade forward. That's what I'm really interested to see. Yeah, no, Gordon's a stud, and I, I haven't spoken to him in since I think seeing him at the um, the uh, regional combine at Waterloo uh, several months ago, back in March. But you know, you have to commend a guy like that for for wanting to finishing finish his career, knowing that he's in arguably the position most affected by losing Trey Ford at the receiver position. And and you know, you you raising uh, that name, it, it's it's so interesting because you know this team. Really, when you look across it, is it's pretty young at many positions and on the offensive line as much as any. And this is a team that's had a really sturdy offensive line for a number of years. But then you look at that receiving court, and Gordon's name obviously stands out. But it, it that's actually to me where this team has their veterans: Lamb, as you mentioned, Rashawn Dagelman, James Basiliga, who had a breakout year in 2021, and Justin Sakar, who I believe is going into his last year as well. And and just all things that you have to imagine for you know we kind of joked about these sort of. I think Nate identified one of the QBs that they have um, going into week one here, but it's it's something like five guys all in their either first or second year. I have to imagine, and I'll throw this back to you, what just that sort of whole group of veteran receivers does to sort of, you know, not just with a guy who's been an all-Canadian uh, for a number of years and all OUA in Gordon Lamb, but just having that whole rotation of guys, what that must do for whomever it is we're seeing uh, take the snaps. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you have veteran receivers, whether that's third, fourth, even fifth-year guys who are out there, you're going to start to see a little bit more from them than you would a standard first-year or second-year, regardless of how good they are. Especially with a quarterback who doesn't have as much game experience as we're going to see with Waterloo, you're going to start seeing things where, you know, if we have a curl route that happens, those veteran receivers are going to really fight hard to get back to the ball. Whereas a first or second year guy might just wait for it and potentially have that be passive uh, disrupted or picked off or whatever the case. I think having that veteran receiving core in general is really going to help whoever their new quarterback is and trying to gain a little bit more confidence. You know, there's going to be a few times where he's going to throw up a jump ball and with a veteran receiver, they're going to have a better opportunity to come down with that and give this guy a, some breaks no matter what anytime you have a first year starter at any position there's going to be some mistakes there's going to be some things that go wrong it's having that confidence to know i've got some studs in that receiving core that i can rely on that's really going to allow for that person to maybe make a couple of mistakes that get 
corrected by your veteran guys and seeing about how that confidence builds to start off this game. Totally. And, you know, obviously then that still leaves the question of who is it going to be that's getting the ball out there. And we went through the names and won't go through every single one now. But to me, the the thing I'm most curious, and I've, I've mentioned this on pods a number of times, is what method does Waterloo take in terms of, you know, do they have a guy who's won the position hands down coming out of camp? Or will we see them rotate a little bit? Will this be something... You know, and, and and the 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 rankings that we put out of sort of where we see these teams uh, fall into place obviously show what we where we kind of think Waterloo will wind up. And just as a quick aside, thank you all for being so civil in your opinions and thoughts on our rankings. That was really excellent to see. Um, not surprising in the least, and obviously being sarcastic right here, but clearly a, a rebuilding year. Uh, you know, obviously some talent on that on that team, but they need to find out who the quarterback is young offensive line, and a lot of new faces in positions on the defense as well. Let's move over to the York side of things because, well, it's our job to do so. Um, You know, we talk about a young team and York has an updated roster and I I, I went through the measure of counting every player on the roster. Um, their, Their entire roster listed is currently seated at 58 players in total. 14 of which are over third year. So fourth, fifth, and in the case of obviously certain schools, having guys in their sixth or seventh years academically and whatnot, eligibility, et cetera. And, you know, in some contexts, that might just speak to, uh, hey, it's a young team, they're rebuilding. And there are a number of players I have put down here as far as people to watch. When it comes to York, and maybe I should, you know, try and figure out a way to be a little less less mean it's really not my nature i think that's how i maintain a a civil demeanor in most aspects of my life is i just take my frustration out on the york lions um but like i said there are plenty of of talented players on this team and it doesn't take doing much more than going back to the eastern or probably the west regional combine last year to see that york puts out players into the draft into these combines and i'll go through some of those names briefly but you know without you know to, to use the sort of vegan turn of phrase, without feeding a dead horse, how do you interpret some of those things I mentioned just about the the, the, the sheer size of this roster and the, the the small number of veteran players on this team given the ups and downs we've seen from the, the coaching standpoint over this summer? What a wild summer that was. Um, what are your thoughts with this? Yeah, there's a lot of things that are going on with the York Lions football team that are unfortunately have nothing to do with football. Uh, you know, losing an offensive coordinator, having, you know, a previous quarterback and Nick the Jesus kind of going off on uh, on Twitter there and talking about some of the issues with the, the program and Warren Craney and things. And I think there's a lot, a lot of criticism that's pointed at Warren Craney on the York football team. And maybe some of it is warranted for sure. Um I'm really interested to see what this team is going to do. I think starting off with a preseason game against the Guelph Griffins and losing 68 to nothing is only going to start them on a downward spiral here. And I'm really hoping that a few of those veteran leaders like you were talking about really step up to the plate here. I think the most powerful thing that could happen for that York Lions football team is to have a leader like Noah Craney who is not only the head coach's son, but is the starting quarterback who is 
naturally the quarterback is always going to be a leader on the team, but also having your relationship with your father, who is the head coach. If that player can come out and have some positive attitude, rally the troops and things of that nature, maybe that spells a little bit of hope for this York Lions football team. It's going to take a lot. And this is like we said on that preview pod, this is going to be a very long season. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a long season and not just because they're playing two more games than they did last year. Um, but, you know, you mentioned Noah's uh, Noah's name and, you know, I'm sure I've had my fair share of fun at his expense on, on uh, you know, seasons pre- previously and a lot of which isn't his fault, of course. But, you know, the one when you look on that coaching staff, the one name there that really does, if you were going to take as as full a, a half, you know, what glass half full approach as you were is that they do have former York Lions QB, arguably the one of the best QBs in their history, Brett Hunchak as the QB coach last time this team was even remotely respectable coaching up Noah. And then just, you know, talking about some of those names, I mean, there are some, you know, just on the offensive side of the ball, guys like Retson Daly. We obviously remember his older brother, Alex having a great career there. Retson, very talented young receiver, Gabriel Apayakubi, also at receiver, and then two young backs in Darnell Jarrett and Avante McCoy. Avante being a guy that they do kind of stretch out into a bit of a slot position. They'll throw him the ball a little bit as well. You know, and as you and me obviously being, uh, it's it, it just dawned on me the first time having the two offensive linemen on on the pod since the Eddie Meredith days. But, you know, at, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean a thing if you can't block for whether it's Noah or whomever it is back there. And that doesn't, well, the names that we're seeing on the roster, some names we've seen over the years, but it really doesn't inspire too much confidence. Uh, I'm ready to move off of this game. Um, Once again, I think the most exciting piece of this game is the Taylor Micklebrook component, as well as seeing who Waterloo's marching out at QB. We good to move on to our next one, my friend? Yeah, I'd say so. Let's do it. And this is where, um, you know, I'm most excited having you on the pod here. We got McMaster traveling out to the nation's capital to take on the Carlton Ravens. Um, first thing I'll say about this game off off the jump, these are two teams that for much different reasons, um, and we went into a bit, some of those reasons on the season preview pod, performed, at least speaking for myself, vastly under expectation in 2021. Now, on the McMaster side of things, they are the quintessential team in the in that OUA West division that teams point to as being like, wait, I'm sorry, Ottawa and UFT got to play in a playoff game in the East, and we just got to miss the playoffs. That ain't right. And there was I forget like four or five teams in that West that had a three and three tiebreaker. Mac being one of them, who of course got the uh, short end of the straw there. Of course, there's the Corey Grant connection with this game. We have hopefully. Carlton's a team that I haven't seen the updated roster, but the return of DeYoung at QB for them, obviously we saw him go down week two, and that's really just where the season fell off the fell off the rails, as it would for any team in the OUA. And then for Mac, having the veteran Andreas Duick, you know, the it shouldn't people shouldn't forget the man who led them to that 2019 Yates Cup victory. So a lot of juicy things in this game. From the coaching angle, the familiarity there, two teams looking to bounce back, and of course, two quarterbacks that you know do it had decent numbers. I think it was a bit substandard by what we've seen him perform in in years prior. Um, 
So let me throw this game to you, your alma mater, uh, a team that you're familiar with uh, better than I am. What do you make of this matchup? Uh, this is a very exciting matchup. We've kind of talked about this before, but there's a lot of different connections that are here as well with Corey Grant being the former offensive coordinator at McMaster, then going to Carleton to be their new head coach. Uh, there's somebody on this program, specifically Corey Grant, who has an intimate knowledge of this McMaster offense, this McMaster team in general. He has obviously coached up these kids. He understands what their capabilities are. He's got a good sense of John Parks as well, who's obviously on the staff and could probably piece together a game plan of some sort in terms of how they, they might uh, try to attack Carlton this year. That being said, when you have star athletes and studs like Andreas Dueck, who I think has a lot of potential and certainly did not show that last year. Uh, I think anytime you have a, a great quarterback like that, you have the chance to really shock some people and, and do some really great things. Uh, they've got a, a lot of young stars on that receiving core as well. Like, you know, your Jackson Coolings and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of potential with this McMaster team. However, there are still a lot of question marks with, you know, the young core with, you know, the, the O-line that we saw last year being certainly subpar from the years past that we've seen with that McMaster team. So there's a lot of question marks here and there's going to be a lot of interest to see what does John Park's offense look like? How are the, how is he going to utilize some of these weapons here that he has? So I'm very interested to see what that's going to look like on that side. And even with the Carlton Ravens on their side, I think you have Tanner DeYoung back, and that's fantastic. Obviously, he's a huge piece of your puzzle, uh, your puzzle here, being that fifth-year quarterback. But if anything, I think it might have uh, shown them last year that, you know, you can't have a quarterback, for sure, a huge part of your program and things, but when he goes down, that can't mean that your entire season goes to waste. So I'd be interested to see how they try to plug and play and try to get more assets around Tanner even if that means changing up the offense a little bit so that he's not so much the center focal point so if anything were to happen you still have more of a balanced attack or if they completely focus in on Tanner and say he's our guy he's back we're going to put this offense and this team on his back and see how far he can take us definitely and I'll, I'll quickly say as well just on the piece of the coaching familiarity it sh shouldn't uh we'd be remiss to not mention of course Chris Hopkins being a former member of the Carlton Ravens coaching staff now working with McMaster you know your your point I mean uh, I was kind of hoping you were going to make up the bring up the point about the offensive line at Mac I mentioned a few times that game against Laurier last year where they got, I, I don't remember how many sacks it was, but both simultaneously broke my heart in thinking that Mac was going to be like a contender in the West and also made me buy way too much Laurier stock. Though I, I, will, I do not regret loving that defense because I loved so many guys on that defense. We'll get to Laurier later. You talk about, uh, pardon me, Carlton and over building overly on a guy like Tanner Young and, you know, if people are forgetting, he's a he's a multi-talented QB. Go back to, I think it probably would have been the 2019 Panda game where he had just one of the most spectacular highlights rolling out of the pocket, hurdling a defender. He's got an arm. He's got the legs. He can make it happen. Reed Van Kunit filling in for him last year. You know, young guy, you know, obviously wasn't expecting to be thrown into that position as he was. 
And you mentioned kind of having a more balanced offense. And, you know, the Nathan Carter era at Carlton has come to an end. He had a stellar career. Uh, it'll be interesting at some point to do a bit of a retrospective on his full time there. But of course, a guy in Josh Ferguson who had a bit of a breakout year for them in 2019 and then took a bit of a step back. I don't remember if maybe injuries played a part in that last year, but it's always interesting to think about a situation where a player like Ferguson, and this will come up actually when we get to talk about Guelph's offense a bit, a player who was part of a platoon and just how, you know, him getting perhaps more carries and more, being a bigger focal point of this offense is that. Is that the makings of a breakout for him or how much did having a guy, a veteran, you know, a standout back like Nathan Carter help him have the success he did back in the day? That's going to be one thing I'm I'm looking forward to as well as the two young uh, Ferdinand brothers and, and Denny and Kasim. So I feel like this Carlton team, there's, you know, a, a lot of question marks on it, a lot of talent. And as I think the theme is with a lot of teams this year, it's going to be sort of who's up next You know, obviously we talked about Western being that dominant force. And I think, you know, as much as any other year, that is the absolute truth, at least from where we stand right now. Uh, But that doesn't mean there's no intrigue in the league because there's so, you know, these are the future stars that we're going to be watching for three, four, five years. And just seeing who's going to sort of come out of that fray, that middle pack, as we kind of talked about that maybe there's a Guelph in that 1B tier, maybe Queens is sticking around there, but a lot in that sort of middle tier. And those teams might not be as good as they were a few years ago when we had a competitive sort of middle pack, but this is where we get to see like, oh, who's looking towards that next year. It's kind of like the joke about when LeBron was in the Eastern Conference for all those years going to NBA championships. There was a few teams that would try to compete with Cleveland, but a lot of teams were like, you know what, we'll just, we'll rebuild for hopefully when he's gone, we'll be ready. Unfortunately, I don't think Western's going anywhere, so maybe that's a moot point whether they want it, teams want to try and compete now or build up a team for later. Um, I realized in our, our Waterloo York um, matchup, um, it, it was an accident, not purposely that we didn't. I didn't actually ask for your pick, though of course I know your pick. But for the purposes of the pod, just to go back real quick, Tom Waterloo York, who are you taking? Waterloo. I am also taking Waterloo. Anyways, back to uh, your McMaster Marauders at Carlton. Uh, unless you have any last uh, news and notes you want to speak on this game, um, who are you taking on this one? I think this is going to be one of the most competitive one of the more competitive games that we've seen this week, especially with, you know, a a few games that are of interest. I think Mac comes away with this in a tight one. I think Andreas Dulek makes a couple more big plays than Tanner does with a few of his uh, key guys around him, including guys like Justin Allen, who is uh, a bit of a all, all a day, everything back for them. Uh, I think Mac pulls this out in a close one. I'm also going with Mac in this one. Um, you know, ultimately, a lot of familiar names in familiar spots. How will that offensive line hold up? I mean, I don't think uh, compared to years past, this doesn't look at least from just sort of thinking about who's going to be on this roster defensively for Carlton team that's going to get after the quarterback as as much as they did um, in years past. Um, and no doubt with um just Mac obviously making that a point of emphasis. Um, so I'm going to go with the known commodity in your McMaster Marauders on the road to start off the season, but I am so interested to see. There's so many things that I'm interested to see with this uh, Carlton Ravens team moving forward. So our next game, 
We're going to do uh, Toronto and Queens. You know, this is a game that, and, and I know you're at home thinking like, oh, dummy, you missed the other one o'clock game, Guelph at Western. Well, guess which game we're saving for last, Guelph at Western. So Toronto on the road at Kingston, three o'clock, you know, a bit of diversity with this schedule as far as the start times. But I mean, you know, I don't get too excited about that in the first couple of weeks because it seems like usually that's where we might get a few of these. Um, this is a game that uh, there is a lot of tradition in this game. In this rivalry, one of the more historic rivalries, as silly as it seems to say, given that, you know, we're talking OEA football, but in probably in sports, when you really just look at how long these teams have been playing each other. You know, we talked about Mac being the sort of exemplar in the in that OUA West conference as being the team that a lot of folks, not just in that McMaster community, but elsewhere, talked about as being sort of being on the wrong side of the divisional split and not making the playoffs. Toronto and much more so Queens are on the vast opposite side of things. Toronto, obviously, then, you know, frankly, I don't care what anyone says about Toronto getting that home playoff game. Toronto got a home playoff game last year and I was so there for it. I loved it. Not literally because I was watching Waterloo lose to Western in London in that playoff game, but just the fact that we got that game, U of T, Varsity Stadium is one of my favorite venues in the province. Toronto boy, that meant a lot. Queens, of course, being the team going undefeated up until their matchup with Western in the Yates Cup and then losing somewhat handedly being the, you know, the target of, of much ire from folks around the league is saying that, well, perhaps you wouldn't have been there had it not been for the way the schedule broke down. Um, when we look at UFT, obviously we mentioned the end of the Trey Ford era in Waterloo. It is the end of the Clay Sakara era. Ooh. Um in 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 UFT, which was you know, despite not the most success, a very fun time to watch, especially when Tommy Dennison was there with them, with the Bird Gang, with with Corby, with Lovegrove and all the deep routes and them just dropping bombs on teams left, right, and center. That's enough preamble out of me. Um, I suppose I said a lot without really saying anything, or I said nothing with, while saying a lot, whatever it is. Uh, Tom, when you look at the UFT Blues on the road at uh, Richardson Stadium at 3 p.m., what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think you you mentioned it there, the post-Clay era. Uh, that's that's a huge, huge loss for this Toronto team, who was, you know, Clay was really given some extra life back to this program and things. And uh, I think it's it's kind of relatively funny for those of you who haven't seen it, Toronto was a little bit in the sporting news with that amazing one-handed interception in practice that uh, Dominic Sirocco did. It was fantastic. But what a lot of people in the comment section also pointed out was that ball was terribly thrown. So whoever is throwing that, whether it's a coach, whether it's a player, whatever else, uh, it's just not clay. That's for sure. Uh, something interesting to kind of go back, very similar to what we were talking about with Waterloo, I see four quarterbacks on this roster here on the Toronto side, one first year, two sec, uh, three second years. Those all three of those second year players are all from the province of British Columbia, which is very interesting to kind of see, but it's once again, not a clear backup or not a clear starter here. I think there's a big opportunity 
for somebody to step into uh, to play here with Toronto, but you're not going to be clay. Certainly not on that very first game of where the bullets start flying. So it'll be interesting to see how Toronto can kind of come back from this clay era and see about how are they going to continue to build forward. They made they went 500 last year and hosted a playoff game. That's huge for this U of T team that has primarily focused completely on the academic side of things and put athletics to the, the wayside. But I just would love to see them continue to build off of this and, and try to make some more strides forward. However, I think that's going to be a very, very big ass post clay. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And, you know, Michael Lehman, Dale Diodotti, kind of the last vestiges of that offense, um, kind of the sort of third and fourth receiver to Lovegrove and to Corby. Um, the last thing I'll say that should be said about UFT before we talk about Queens, which we should no doubt be doing more so in this matchup. And you mentioned Dominic Sirocco's name, a, a defense where, you know, there are some names that have been in this program for a while. Uh, Tolu Ahmed at defensive back, along with guys like Liam Cousineau, Cody Hale, and of course, uh, Caleb. Zigby, um, guys that have been in that system, in that program for a while that, um, you know, can make an impact and will kind of lead them um, hopefully to have uh, something of a respectable defense, maybe keep them in some games, at least for some time against opponents, maybe more on the level. Um, and of course, it should, uh, talking about the coaching standpoint, should be mentioned, of course, former Windsor Lancer head coach Joe Demore, now with the UFT Blues as well. Uh, but as I said, we our focus when it comes to this matchup, just as far as the bigger picture of the OUA and sort of things that will in all likelihood matter in the grand scheme of things, is talking about this Queen's Golden Gale team. I think in many respects the the product of them making that Yates Cup is maybe hey, maybe they were a little ahead of schedule, but I think when you look at the 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 from the coaching staff, really from an complete top-down method of of coaching administration to the players on that team this is a team that whether it whether whether it would not have happened in 2021 in a more standard OUA season I don't think this is a team that sort of with the current pieces in sort of all facets would surprise people that whether they made the eights in 2021 or this year or next year would surprise people of course though like with all teams, and I should just go back to the end of the Malcolm Campbell era in for UFT as well, one of the stud defensive linemen in the league for years. The end of the Anthony Federico era for Queens. The end of the Rashid Tucker era for Queens. And as well, to sort of couple that, when we look at that run game for Queens, a couple of their offensive linemen moving on to, to greener pastures or wherever they went off to. Um, you know, they still have, you know, some some solid players in the receiving core. They have a veteran QB there has been there for a while. What do you make of this Queens team? Are they still on that trajectory of moving up or might it have been better if that Yates cup appearance was sort of halted just so, I mean, things never work in sports in just a complete linear fashion, but we feel better when it does. We feel that, you know, you miss the playoffs and then maybe you, you just miss it by a little and then you just make it by a little and then you make a good run and then you make a Yates cup run, but you lose and then you win a Yates and it goes like that. I mean, it never works that smoothly. What do you think of this Queens Gill and Gales team? So, We've obviously talked a little bit in detail, especially on the, uh, the preview pod that we had the other day, uh, just about this Queens team and talking about that weaker uh, league and the, the divisions and everything else. The fact of the matter is Queens made it to the Yates Cup. 
regardless of how you want to talk about it, who they have to play, whatever else, they made it to the Yates Cup and they lost to their longtime rival, uh, the Western Mustangs, pretty handily, 29 to nothing. I don't, I can't remember a Yates Cup runner-up with a bigger chip on their shoulder coming into a season than this Queens Golden Gales team. They're losing a, two really special players for them and Anthony Federico and Rasheed Tucker for sure. However, this team now knows, hey, we can make it to the playoffs. We did make it to the Yates Cup. We have obviously it didn't go the way that we wanted to. Western came out and they really exploded, whatever else. You made it there. You have pretty much everybody who's not wearing the tricolor right now saying that that was a fluke and you shouldn't have been there. This is your time now to go out and to prove everybody wrong. James Keenan in his fifth year, sure, he's leading, uh, he's losing his star running back, Rasheed Tucker. This is now going to be his season. Put the ball in my hands, put the pressure on me. Let me take this team as far as we can possibly go. I think we're going to see some really, really special things from this Queens team. And I think they're going to go in. They can come out undefeated up until their, uh, their game against Western and still feel like they are the ultimate underdogs, no matter what in this entire league, that they have to prove everybody wrong. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. If you're anybody who's going up against Queens to have a really good program who still feels like they are slighted, that could be, uh, we could see a lot of really great things from this Queens team. Yeah. The nobody believes in us, uh, mentality is, is a powerful thing. Um, and, and you're right. It's, it's really, I, you know, you could think across so many sports and try and think of a parallel to a team that could have that type of, um, you know, for me, I, and I guess showing my colors as a basketball fan as well. You think back to say like the 2015 Golden State Warriors when, you know, LeBron's missing some guys with him and then Golden State wins and da, 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 da. But talking about James Keen, another guy along with, say, we mentioned Terrence Young being a, a dual threat QB. Um, he can make it happen with his feet. We've seen him do it so often, not just with the speed, but actually just juking dudes on the field. And he's got a, a veteran receiver in Richard Burton out there and a couple of younger guys, Najong Choi and Nathan Falcone, that I, I think could be ripe to have some breakouts for them, um, along with obviously Burton. Um, so we got Toronto at Queens, uh, you know. What are we thinking on this one? I think Queens comes out, and this is a statement game for them. I think they put up some big numbers, and uh, Toronto gets caught in the way. Well, as you know, unfortunately, you'll hear with a couple more picks. If I if I am correct in this, uh, I am aligned with Tom once again. I'm taking Queens at home in this one, and another factor as well. You know, Richardson Stadium um, just being uh, one of the top facilities in in the OUA, and uh, you know, a great crowd and. Hopefully they get it all filled out. Obviously, it'll be a little bit before orientation and all those kind of things, you know, with students still moving in and whatnot. But hopefully they get a good crowd and that place is rocking for the uh, for the U of T Blues. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll see what the Blues can do on the road. Uh, We move to the late night game, the Ottawa GGs on the longest trip you could take in the OUA. Visiting the Windsor Lancers at Alumni Field in Windsor, of course. Um, you know, another tale of two teams where it's going to be uh, perhaps a bit more so in Windsor's case uh, with Sam Girard hanging up the cleats. Um, but two teams where, you know, interesting to see where they'll be sitting. Uh, you know, Ottawa, obviously, Ben Maracle's been at QB for, with them for a number of years. Some guys... Um, 
at receiver that they've had around Daniel Oadejo, Tristan Park, um, at running back, seeing that on their updated roster, JP Simonkinda's back for them. That is huge. And then, of course, you know, Ottawa just being a team that maybe not to the same standard as sort of maybe the Westerns and Guelphs of the world, but a team that you can usually rely on to have a tough defense and a good secondary and a good linebacking core, um, which make them usually a pretty competitive team. But of course, we mentioned this is them on the road. This is them with the magical golden arches of that McDonald's uh, lingering in the background of Alumni Field, doing its magical powers on all who dare to oppose the Lancers at home, doing just whatever it is they do. What are you thinking about with this matchup? This This one's oddly intriguing, despite not being as sexy as some of the other games that we have here. I am very much looking forward to this this game. I think this is going to be a really exciting one. Uh, you mentioned that drive. It is roughly seven and a half hours cramped into a coach bus from Ottawa to Windsor. I don't care who you are, that affects you on some level. To have this, uh, you know, be your very first game of the season, more than just the team that you're playing against, this is a very big Uh, deal for this Ottawa GG's team. This is going to be a very big test to see how focused they can stay, how committed that they can be. Uh, And I know, I know you're, you very well might be the biggest Ben Miracle fan out there, uh, Zach. And uh, I love seeing that Ottawa GG's let's ride GG nation. He's got the, uh, he's got the Russell uh, Wilson uh, terms going on for this GG team. Uh, This is going to be his team to lead his responsibility. We'll see what this Ottawa team can do, but Windsor with all of the amazing games that we saw in Windsor last year, even losing their, you know, a guy like San Gerard and things to be perfectly honest. You know, we were talking a little bit about this uh, previously. I don't know that Sam Gerard is a uh, difference maker in the sense that if you don't have them, you lose these games and things, nothing to take away from him. But the way that Windsor was stacking up and the way that they were playing their game, he wasn't a integral, you know, if we don't have him, we're going to be losing this kind of player. I think they find a way to get another playmaker in there. I don't know who they're going to be going up with to replace him at that quarterback spot there. But I think Windsor puts together a fantastic defense and a pretty decent run game. And I think they make a lot of nightmares for the Ottawa GGs in this night game. Yeah, as far as the the QB position, and you know, I, I I should admit, Nate obviously does have a larger stake in in the Ben Miracle game than I just with the his personal connection to him. You know, we saw at times last year both Carter Zinger and Danny Skelton at QB getting reps for these teams. No indication as of yet, just from sort of the outsider perspective, who's looking to sort of take control. Um, but, you know, with a guy like Callan Bethune at receiver who's been there, Justin Amoa, a couple guys in there that have been in the system as well, and, and defensively as well, a guy like Andrew Beattie in the secondary, Culver Lynn, Zach Benson on the defensive line, who's been just getting better and better through his time there and is going to, I think, his, his fifth or sixth year with the program, you know, with all the COVID uh, sort of uh, hiccup within the middle, kind of screwing up eligibility years and things like that. A team that just, you know, for the obvious reason of the distance you have to travel, but then just for that, you know, the, the magic of playing at Windsor is a competitive, always a competitive game. Um, and I you know I I love that I can kind of be the 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 Ben Miracle the Ben Miracle stakeholder in this in this case. However, that didn't necessarily translate to my pick because uh, 
you know, to to speak for yourself as well. I'm buying some Windsor Lancers in this game. Uh, I'm taking them at home. For you know, you mentioned that the that added factor of having to stay locked in for that travel. You know, I assume they'll probably go up the night before and whatnot, but it's a 7 o'clock game, so who, you know, who knows what they'll be doing and just a lot of time to be spending between on the road if they go up on Friday and then having the whole day to spend there and just, have, and just stay locked in and whatnot. Um, but you know, that's not to take away from this Ottawa team. And as we mentioned, this could be a matchup where we're looking down the line, you know, week 7, week 8, week, week 9, and being like, wow, that really that game had a had a had a massive effect on how the standings played out uh i obviously gave your pick away there but you know is there anything left uh, as far as why you're going with Windsor in this one no i think more than anything you know we've spoken about there's a few key players for Windsor and you know things of that nature Windsor for a very long time now has not been a team that that's been known for stud star players uh certainly in the past couple of years I think they're a really phenomenal team uh, group. I know that might sound a little ridiculous talking about a football team and things, but they really work well together. Maybe they don't have one star stud going into this season, but I think that team atmosphere with the long drive, being in that magical Windsor Stadium, I think they pull out the first win of the season here and they gain a whole ton of confidence going into the rest of this 2022 schedule. And that takes us now to, while not the last game of your Saturday slate, the one we saved for last, because as they say, you saved the best for last. And I think there's good reason to think that this is the one that people are going to have their eyes tuned on the most. It is Guelph. It is Western. And to boot, it is in London. Um, Guelph taking their show on the road against the reigning Vanier Cup champion Western Mustangs. You know, it is funny. We were kind of talking about some of the teams don't put out their 55-man rosters or, pardon me, their, their just year roster uh, going to week one to try and perhaps uh, maintain an air of mystery or something like that. Uh, these are two teams that both, um, you know, threw caution to the wind and for good reason, perhaps more so in Western's case. Um, but in Guelph's case, the release of that roster coming out before week one I think may have been misguided. Uh, we talked about this. I was I was frantically messaging with you to double check that my eyes weren't playing games on me when I saw that this team did not just lose AJ Allen and Jared Beeksma to the CFL, two of the the top linebackers in the OUA last year, and of course what made that front seven, let alone that whole defense, so formidable. But they lost their whole doggone linebacking core because Justin Lauzon is not on the roster. Tom, you did a little digging before we get into this game. Uh, we don't need the full Lauzon update, but I, I'm I'm corrected this right. He's he is gone. Yeah, that's that is correct. Uh, we did we did a little bit of research into here. Uh, Justin Lozon is no longer with this Guelph team, at least for this particular year. They lose Jared Beeksma. They lose Ben Lack as well. Yes. This is a, if you're a Guelph Griffiths football fan, this is a, a little bit of uh, nervousness here. You're going to have a very young linebacking core against a team like the Western Mustangs, who even in their worst years are still a running powerhouse 
They are the jam the football down your throats kind of team. And with Keon Edwards coming back, I know they lose Trey, uh, Trey, Trey Humes. Humes, but Keon Edwards is a phenomenal running back with that offensive line that they return most of their starters. This is going to be a very big test for this Guelph Griffins defense. Anytime you go up against Western, it's always going to be a big game. But having your first real live bullets against the number one running team in the country last year, that's huge. Yeah, and you mentioned the loss of Trey Humes. You mentioned um, you know that running game. Edward Winati, now a guy who's only going to get more carries, and from spending some time around, um, you know, spending you know living in London, spending some time around that team, and just you know people in that program. You know, there's people who you'll hear say Wanadi might be the best running back in that room, which is ridiculous because Keon Edwards, I mean, if it weren't for Trey Hume, pardon me, uh, Trey Ford may have been the OUA MVP last year, likely probably was the MVP if not for Trey Ford because he put up stellar numbers, of course, bolstered no doubt by having this all world offensive line that is just littered with talent. Um, and especially with a young man like Eric Anderson at left tackle, who's now only going to his second year, I believe, just getting better. Zach Fry having spent time at Saskatchewan coming back, uh, having Elliot Beamer at center, who's just such a uh, uh, a calming presence in the middle for them. And then Philip Grahovic, who, uh, as we learned last year, not only just, you know, road grades defenders in his way, but he'll catch a touchdown pass in the end zone too. Um, you know, you just look when we just look at this offense and we'll look at their defense in a moment. They got the best running backs in the province. They got the best QB in the province. They got possibly the best receiving group in the province too, even though they're losing Brett Ellerman. As we just said, they probably have the best offensive line unit in the country. And you add in all those factors about Guelph. I mean, the the fact that I think, you know, this game and this game, I think still has a possibility of being a tight one. Um, no doubt, uh, and we'll talk about some of those playmakers Guelph has on offense and what could make them a formidable task against what's a bit of a younger um, Western defense, though a few notable names still in the mix for them. Um, but, you know, golly, that is that is some powerhouse. I mean, you mentioned, I think, on the preview pod, you know, or, you, know you mentioned how Queens is a team that remarkably could make a Yates and that still have a chip on their shoulder. This is a team that could win a Vanier and get better. Let's talk about maybe some of the guys on the offensive side of the ball for Guelph, um, and then let that lead us to talking about the Western defense. Because I, you know, I sort of alluded to this in talking about whether Josh Ferguson running back at Carlton, whether Nathan Carter not being there anymore, will that have a positive impact, a negative impact? How will that affect him? I think a guy who has uh, an argument to be might have might be the best running pardon me, receiver in the province in Clark Barnes in an interesting similar position in that obviously with Keandre Smith moving on to the CFL he'll get more targets he'll perhaps get to bolster his his counting stats and all those things but does that then put more pressure on him do teams get to lock in on him a bit more when he doesn't have his partner in crime taking away some of that pressure but of course then you have Another year of Sean Law at the helm, and I think anyone who's watched this team, you'd have to assume, you'd have to assume he's going to be QB1 for them there. Um, 
and a veteran offensive line in their own regard. And a lot of guys that you got to work with, guys like Ben Petrie, Spencer Masterson, Connor Burke. Uh, what do you make of this Guelph offense? And still, of course, with the sort of, you know, the rotating cast of, of familiar characters at running back as well. What, what do you make of this Guelph offense? Is this finally a year where perhaps Guelph's offense is sort of what they lean on to more than their defense? Which I don't know if that's probably going back decades since that was the case. Yeah, I think anytime you have a guy like Ryan Shan at uh, this, you know, obviously he is the head coach, although his hands are still very much into this offense and trying to help out and things. This is his offense that they're kind of running here. I think anytime you have Ryan a part of this, you have the opportunity to have an explosive offense. It'll just be seeing how they can kind of develop from last year. Obviously having Sean Law have that game experience that he obviously had from the previous year, getting him into this year, having some more confidence, being able to sling the ball a little bit more, understanding your receivers a bit more. Those are all going to be contributing factors. Um, I also know that while Clark Barnes certainly has the potential to be the best receiver in the OUA, if he's getting constantly doubled and triple teamed, they are not going to force Sean Law to throw to him exclusively. They have some other targets that are back there. Sure, they may not be a Keandre Smith or even a Keen Schaefer Baker that they lost a couple of years ago and things, but they are going to sling this ball around and make sure that teams play them honest. And if you're trying to double or triple team a single player, they will go to uh, they will go to the well. And that doesn't always mean, hey, we have a clear number two receiver behind Clark Barnes. They have the ability to to throw this around and really make sure that everybody's touching the ball, especially with that three-headed monster that we were talking about with the running backs and uh, Juwan Jeffrey, Kane Stevenson. Uh, I think they're really going to spread the ball out a lot here um, and not necessarily have one game plan going into this and saying, this is the way that we're going to win this game or we're not going to. Uh, They're going to try out a lot of different things here against this Western team and see if they can't catch them unawares. Most definitely, and of course, Kwame Osi being the third head of that that three-headed monster in the backfield for them. And, and, you know, no doubt, obviously, Guelph's going to have some targets to sort of spell Clark Barnes a little bit. And, uh, you know, before, I guess, jumping into the the who they'll be going up against in that Western defense, you know, an interesting comparison for Clark as far as just a, a receiver in the league that will sort of be giving him a run for top dog is Savon Magne Jones for Western. Um, and the interesting parallel isn't just what they do in the offense receiving, but they both are stellar in the return game as well. However, I have a little more faith in guys like Griffin Campbell and Justin Nixon being the alternates that, uh, you know, Western can look to if Guelph decides to really lock in on on Magne Jones. And, you know, obviously Hillock's got, you know, a one in, uh, you know, a million connection with him, given they have the high school connection as well. Um, so that's just, I mean. I guess that was me just taking us talking about Guelph's offense, talk more about Western's offense, but as I should be doing to talk about, say, Western's defense a little bit and perhaps how Guelph might be able to take advantage. You know, we mentioned some of the veterans at the offensive line and in the run game. Um, You know, this is a a team where, you know, we talked about the end of the Federico era, the end of the Malcolm Campbell era. It is the end, of course, of the Deontay Knight era in Western, which, you know, was a bit of a, not a bit of a truncated, shortened era, um, and just he didn't play too many seasons with them. Um, so a young D-line, young linebacking core for them. Um, some studs in that secondary, uh, you know, none less than, of course, Daniel Valente Jr., defensive MVP from the Vanier. But just honing in on that front seven for Western, you know, guys that by no means 
weren't uh, top performers in their own right in years prior, but uh, a guy on the D-line and Malcolm Hines and the linebacking core of Riley McLeod, I think really have the opportunity to become those sort of household names that, you know, Western to add to the likes of, as we said, um, you know, Valente Jr. and, and Kojo O'Doom and, and Rob Panabaker in the secondary of guys that when, you know, you talk about Western, you talk about that defense, are names that are going to come up. So a possibility for Guelph to maybe run the ball on them a bit. We talked about them having that Law and Barnes connection Um what do you think about with this Western defense? Do you think this is is this what I perceive as this young front seven? Is it just Western fills in gaps so well that even if they are a bit young, it's not like as we talked about with say Waterloo and some other teams where it might take a little bit, or is Western just gonna, you know, are they just gonna hit the ground running with these guys? Yeah, I think Deontay Knight is one of those guys that we've been talking about where you're just not going to replace him right off the bat. Uh, I think he was such a stud for them that it's going to be a step backwards in that position, no matter who you decide to really put in there. However, though this Western defense might be young, sure, but think about it in practice, they go up against that Western offense every single day. And like the old saying goes, iron sharpens iron. I think no matter what, Maybe you get away with uh, surprising them in the pass game and doing some, you know, uh, some standard things like maybe a screen pass or something along those lines. You might catch them unaware with that young team or that young front seven. But run stopping is what they have been focusing on for sure. No matter what, every time they do a 12 on 12 period and it's ones against ones, that run game is going to be very much prominent in there. So I think there's a lot of things that Western does really well and it seems like year after year after year they've always got guys to plug and play no matter if maybe sure you're losing an all canadian you're gonna have somebody in there who's pretty damn good maybe he's not an an all-star this first year or something but you're not gonna have any slouches in that western front seven i can tell you that so uh i wouldn't if i'm guelph I'm not going into this thinking, oh, Deontay Knight's gone. Like, we're we're okay now. We, we can do whatever we want. This is going to be a ground-pounding game, and you've got to bring your A game, first game of the season, to really make sure that you're, you have a chance to beat this Western team. Now, I will say, Guelph played against uh, the York Lions. Now, obviously, we've talked in length about York, and they're not going to give them the best uh, game or whatever else. If nothing else – that gives that team a ton of confidence. 68 to nothing, no matter who you're talking to, is a big deal, especially when it comes off of two punt return touchdowns by Anakin Guthrie, their first-year defensive back. He looks shifty in those highlight reels that I saw. I think that this team has a lot of energy and a lot of buzz going around and walking into this Western game, and I think they're going to give them a real run for their money. Yeah, the force is strong with that one. And uh, just last note on Deontay Knight. I had to, man. Last note on Deontay Knight. Deontay, if you're listening, still an open invitation. If I see you around London, one-on-one, you and me, you put on the pads on deal, and I'm putting on the pads on the line. You coward, you Deontay. No, I love you, man. Um, well, then last pick, we got Guelph at Western. Where are you going with this one? I think this is going to be a closer game than everybody is thinking, but Western comes out on top. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going purple all the way in this one as well. Um, that's 
All right, that that is the weekly slate of games we have for week one. As a little recap, the one o'clock games, we have Waterloo at York. Me and Tom are lockstep. Well, we're lockstep on all these picks in week one. I promise it will not maintain this way throughout the year. Waterloo at York, we're both taking Waterloo on the road. We have Mac on the road at Carlton. We're both going with the Marauders. Guelph at Western, as you just heard, we're taking Western at home. Three o'clock, we have the UFT Blues on the road to take on the Queens Golden Gales in an historic rivalry. We're taking the Gales at home. And then the nightcap the Ottawa Gigi's on the road at alumni field taking on the Windsor Lancers under the magic of those golden arches and we are taking the Lancers at home Tom I'd say we did a pretty good job there you you got anything left for the the folks uh just to look out for or just anything you want to leave them with as as we go into this uh, beautiful weekend chock full of OUA football yeah I think Week one for me is always the most exciting or one of the most exciting times, I should say, in every OUA and just U sports football season. There's a lot of quote unquote trickery that goes on, like teams not releasing their full on roster until the very last second and, you know, having listing people in certain here, things of that nature. I remember back in the day where they used to do 55 man rosters that they would submit and that they're showing a 30 front and they don't run a 30 front the entire game. They're trying to do anything they possibly can to limit anything that another team might have against them and saying, Oh, I saw that they're doing this or I have an idea of what they're doing here. So we might see some real crazy stuff in week one with teams coming out in certain formations or uh, certain players in certain positions that you have no idea about. So I'm very, very interested in seeing who comes out playing what, what kind of answers get uh, or what kind of questions get answered with this first week with, Pretty much every team here has at least some variety of some questions here. So we're going to get a chance to see what a preview of this entire OUA season is going to be in this first week. And I am so excited to have OUA football back, man. 100%. I mean, no doubt there will be some questions answered and no doubt there will be some uh, red herrings kind of throwing us off the scent. And, you know, it's only the first week. Keep that in mind. And I say that not only to uh, you listening, but I say that to myself because I'm sure I'll be back on the pod on Sunday with some wild overreactions. And just as a programming note, the next time you will be hearing me will be with the lovely and talented Nate Hobbs breaking down all these beautiful games so enjoy week one in the OUA it is a week to celebrate we are so excited I am right there with Tom in his excitement to see what this season has to bring and I'll talk to you on Monday at the 55.